So just to begin, if, if you'd like to give a brief introduction to yourself, your background, and then also your different works. Thank you. My name is Biko Agozino. I grew up in Nigeria, where I did my first degree in sociology. My master's was in University of Cambridge in the Faculty of Law, and my doctorate was also in the UK at the University of Edinburgh in the Faculty of Law. I did my dissertation on Black women and the criminal justice system. And um, my work generally is a contribution to what is known as intersectionality in the US. In the UK, it's known as articulation, following the work of Stuart Hall, who I bumped into while I was doing my research on Black women and the criminal justice system and have continued to use that paradigm to show that race, class, and gender relations are different. They do not separate. They are joined together and experienced together, and therefore we should be analyzing them together. That was where I came to reinterpret the work of Marx as being relevant to what we do, rather than being alien to be rejected. Yes. Yeah, fantastic. And on that note, I'd love to talk about the article that uh, sparked me to reach out to you, which is the Africana paradigm in Marxist capital. Um, if you want to give a brief introduction to that piece as well, I, I got a chance to read over it. And the main topics that I'm obviously interested in are your critique of, of thinkers like Cedric Robinson and the idea that Marxism is inherently Western or Eurocentric. And then I'd love to also from there talk more about your analysis of, of Marx's uh, focus on, on slavery and colonialism, as well as race? Yes, I think that's a very good question to get us started. And my interest in that topic arose from a long engagement with the work, but reading the work as a hard copy is difficult to read and assimilate all that you want from that piece of work. Uh, so when I tried reading it with PDF, I was amazed to find so many references to Africa, the Negro, slavery, and so on. And so I decided to do a work, working paper, working progress paper for a seminar presentation on campus. And it went down very well. So I went on to the National Council for Black Studies and made a presentation. Um, then from there to the Review of African Political Economy where it was published in 2014. And the editors invited me back in 2020 to do a summary of the article because they found it to be path breaking or groundbreaking or some would say surprising. Um, it has been very well received, and I like that. But the way the Europeans are receiving it is different, I believe, from the way Africans are receiving the article. The Europeans, although sympathetic and appreciative of the articles, seem to see it as a demolition of Cedric Robinson. And I wouldn't even dream of demolishing the very good work of Cedric Robinson on Black Marxism, that's a very important piece of work. And uh, I was not thinking, I, I don't think I used the word demolition in the article at all. I'm just saying that the references that 
Cedric Robinson made to the work of Marx are not substantive enough to justify a rejection of Marxism in this in the field of Africana studies. I invite our readers to go through the text again with me to see that Marx regarded the experiences of people of African descent as fundamental to understanding the need for social change under capitalism. It wasn't a passing reference at all. It was numerous, hundreds of references uh, again and again. Rather, what I may be accused of demolition is what is known as Euro-communism, because they tend to narrow Marx down as uh, an intellectual, an, a, a European intellectual who was guiding the European working class movement, and therefore people from Africa are foreign to this body of work and shouldn't really be using it in theorizing their own history as an assumption. This is found in the work of uh, even people born in Africa, like uh, uh, Eric Hobsbawm, <laughs> who said that Marx's knowledge of African history was non-existent. Well, that's not possible if you have read Marx in detail as I have. As I have. And if you read uh, the work of uh, Artuse, who was also born in Africa, you find that his emphasis is on class, class struggle, but not anything on racism or even sexism, whereas Marx was engaged in all these intersected struggles in his own work, as I have shown in the article. And uh, I think it was Derrida who tried to correct that error by Euro communism when he was invited to Ivern, University of California, Ivern, to deliver a lecture as part of a historical accounting of the influence of Marxism with Marxists invited from all over the world, but none from Africa. So Derrida was the only African who was invited and he used the post book. He used the occasion to again remind us that Marx placed Africa at the center of his work. He did so, Derrida did so by starting with the assassination of the Secretary General of the South African Communist Party to say, why is, was it necessary to assassinate a man if his ideas were pronounced dead already? It means that those ideas are not dead, it's still relevant, and we should go back to read Marx, said Derrida. We should read, pay the debts that we owe to Marx. And so that's where I took the debt from to say, okay, how about the debts that Marx owed to us, that he borrowed from us? And so that's how the article came. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a really, really good article. Um, and I, I highly recommend um, everybody read it because it's fantastic, but I'd love to go more into the details as well. And first is after having, so I've read volume one and, and I also noticed as well, like frequent, uh, you know, discussion of, of Africa, a very consistent discussion of slavery. So that's mm -hmm. where I'd like to start is Marx's analysis of slavery uh, as a, an antecedent of, of capitalism. And how do you think that his analysis of slavery as well as his uh, contemporary analysis of the civil war in the United States 
uh, informed his understanding of the historical development of capitalism as wage slavery uh, progressing from the previous form of slavery? Yes, that's a very good question. And in the work of Marx, compared to his contemporaries, there is a deep understanding that the enslavement of Africans was a model for understanding the exploitation of workers all over the world. He used the theory of surplus value to explain this. And in the case of the enslaved, the rate of surplus value, that is the fruits of the labor that we are not paid to the laborer as wages. In the case of slavery, it is 100% because the enslaved didn't get any wages. And if workers in Europe understood this, they, wouldn't st they would stop being proud of the fact that they were not enslaved 100%, they will realize that they are still enslaved because they, their surplus value was still being expropriated by the employers, though not to the extent of the exploitation of the enslaved, which was 100%. So that insight was not even shared by Engels, who was the one who completed volume two and volume three. And you can see if you read all three volumes, that the references to Africa and slavery almost disappeared in volume two and in volume three, except towards the end in volume three, where Engels went back to Marx's concern with Africa by looking at the defeat of the British by the Zulu in South Africa during the Zulu wars um, in, in volume three. So if you read the Communist Manifesto in the 1840s by Marx and Engels, you find that the references to slavery were almost completely references to ancient slavery in Europe. But even in that, there is a reference to modern slavery in the Americas because there was a diplomat or so from the US who came to France and was trying to defend the institution of slavery. And Marx made reference to that in volume one as, no, in, in the Communist Manifesto, right? So I believe that when we read Marx in greater detail with Africana studies at the back of our mind, we will find that there is a lot more to share than to reject, right? So for example, the whole theory that Marx used to explain profit or profit making under capitalism was borrowed directly from Africa. He called it commodity fetishism. And he used different phrases to illustrate this. He said, it's a hieroglyphics an African system of writing. He called it an, uh, necromancy. Necromancy was also known as negromancy. It's a synonym. The Europeans used them together because this was the practice by which Africans raised the dead. And 
bring them back to life. So that is what capitalists do when they raise profits from uh, an earlier investment. They are raising the dead, apparently, according to Marx. But the error in the European thinking is that when you are able to raise the dead, therefore, the value of everything will have to be based on the value of the spirits that we are raised in necromancy, that is profit or money becomes the standard for evaluating anything in life. And Marx is saying that that is wrong. That is what he called commodity fetishism. You can still produce goods and services without treating them as commodities. You see that in the public library system in the US, that is not a commodity that is being produced, but a service that meets the needs of people who don't have books at home or who don't have internet connections. A lot of services rendered by the libraries and they are free. Surprisingly, this is one area where Lenin praised America to say America was building more public libraries than Russia. And he was ashamed of that. He said, Russia should be building more public libraries than America. Uh, so that's just one example that of something you couldn't really use the profit motive or money or commodity value to determine. That is access to public library. Once upon a time, it was exclusive. People of African descent, um, including American Indian natives, were not allowed into libraries because they were for whites only. Uh, so same thing can be said about the public school system, the K-12 system as a public good, not sold to the highest bidder. In some countries, you, you still have to pay tuition for K-12, say in South Africa today, which is a shame because they need the public education more than even America does today. But that came out of a struggle by the working people to demand things like that. And according to W.B. Du Bois, the provision of education, public education with public funding in America, especially in the South, was as a result of the initiative of Africans who came out from slavery and say, we demand learning. And here in the South, especially in Virginia, poor white people, we are running around burning down those schools. They didn't know the schools were for everybody. It's not only for black people to go to school. And so that's a shame uh, that you may see today in the protest against Affordable Care Act. Why would poor people be against Affordable Care Act when it would be beneficial to all poor people irrespective of color or gender? So those are the problems why Marx used commodity fetishism to refer to it, but it has since been taken into consideration by Marxist legal theories. Ivanji Pashukanis, for example, would say that in punishment under capitalism, the emphasis is to make the punishment fit the crime, to make sure that the criminal is paying adequate price for the crime. If you do the crime, you do the time type of thinking. Whereas in the body of work of Marxism, especially in the work of Engels, there will come a time when you will no longer need punishment. But 
you will only need administrative rules to govern society and people will do the right thing because they, are, they will no longer be afraid of punishment. And so he called that the withering away of the state, the withering away of law, the theory of the withering away of law. The assumption is that the state is under capitalism, a tool for one class to dominate another class. And so in the future communism, when there is no longer a dominant or ruling class, classes have been abolished, you won't need the state anymore to act as a coercive force to compel people to obey. Instead, you will have a rule that says from all according to their abilities and to all according to their needs. Therefore, the commodity form would be allowed to wither away, right? So that hasn't happened yet, but it's a theory that we should examine, maybe with reference to the laws against things like marijuana, things like gambling, things like prostitution, things like same-sex relationships that used to be criminal, but they are now being allowed to wither away the law to such an extent that we can still run our society without having to obsess about punitiveness. That is the work of Angela Davis on abolition democracy, following the work of Du Bois, that for thousands of years, we, we are able to run our societies without prisons and without militarized policing. And if we put our minds together, we can do it again by moving away from the commodity fetishism of capitalism. So thank you so much for, the, for your great answer to that question. Um, and it prompted, I'm curious as well in Marx's analysis of the value form as well, and uh, his discussion about value, if you don't mind going more into how he owes debts to, uh, to African theories and to Africans as well for his analysis of the value form. Thank you. Thank you. If you go back to that chapter one, it's actually chapter one of Capital, where he begins to demystify profit, and capital, the origin of capital. According to classical economists, Adam Smith and Ricardo, this is as a result of savings and investment. That's how you accumulate capital. Matt said, no, that's not actually true, because when you look at it in detail, you find that the capital as a form of a force of production has not always existed, whereas savings and investment can be said to have existed throughout history, in human history, right? Right, so when you look at the capitalist form, the best way you can understand it, according to Marx, is to see that even human beings can be treated as commodities. Because the Negro is a Negro. Only under certain circumstances does he become a commodity to be hunted, captured, kidnapped, and sold, or bought to make profit or to produce more goods for sale. 
same thing goes for a table. A table is a table. You can make a table for your home. It's not commodity because you made it for your own use for, to meet your need for a table. But the moment you take it to the market and put a price on it to make a profit with which you hire more carpenters to make more tables for you, Ikea, for example, you are becoming a capitalist, right? So what is unique here is not that you made a table or you met produce something that meets the needs of people. What is unique here is that you're employing lots of people to produce that, those basic goods, but not as needs, you're producing them as commodities through which you can make more profit and accumulate more capital and either kidnap people to work for you for free for hundreds of years, kill the indigenous people and steal their land, and use the land to produce something that could make you even more profit like tobacco, which might be valueless because there is no value to tobacco. So Mark said, look, the way you can understand this now is to look at a pearl or a pebble. The reason why gold or diamond or a pearl can be more expensive in exchange market compared to a pebble, is because pebbles are very plentiful. You don't have to labor to pick them up, right? They're all around you. Whereas you have to dig for miles under the earth to get the gold or diamond or pearls. And therefore the amount of labor that goes into the production of the good, that is quote actually marks up the value from nat natural resource to a commodity that could be sold for profit. He used labor as the determinant of the value of the commodity, the labor theory of value, according to him. And, and he used enslaved Africans again, and again to illustrate what he was talking about, to oppose slavery, basically, because having slavery means that workers will be paid slave wages. And if they don't want it, they could be fired and replaced with slave labor. He made this point more emphatically by saying that the workers had been campaigning for an eight hour day, 40 hour week. They couldn't get it until slavery was abolished. Uh, and therefore he said to the European workers that they should pay attention to the struggle for the abolition of slavery and how it was won, because that is the way that the workers of the world would go about fighting for the abolition of capitalist exploitation in his view, right? So that theory of value, labor theory of value has not been contradicted. Rather what is happening in neoliberal economics is to try to extend the domination of capitalism by saying that all the forces of production are capital. So they now talk about human capital. They also talk about natural capital. And then they talk about financial capital. So everything is now capital from the point of view of neoliberal. I think this was uh, an error made by another theorist who was born in Africa, 
right? Talking about social capital, right? But when you pause to think about the workers are not capital in the understanding of Marx. I think Marx made that as a joke. He, in one of his articles, he said that these capitalists treat their workers as their human capital. Human capital, that's what he said. And therefore, it's not, it's not right to treat human beings that way in the view of Marx. So we're not capital, we're different from capital. We are providers of labor, labor power. Okay, nature is not capital either. Nature is autonomous from capital because nature has always existed before capitalism came to exist. And labor has always existed before capitalism came to exist. The thing that distinguishes capitalism is the commodity fetishism, the use of commodity as a standard for the valuation of everything else that is now being expanded into labor and into nature. But we should be cautious not to do that if we follow Marx more closely. It's a difficult question because the way Marx used mathematics to illustrate the theory of value to say that you can actually calculate the rate of exploitation of surplus value. It can be 50%, it can be 20%, but in the case of the enslaved and women who have to work at home without pay in domestic settings, it is 100% exploitation of the surpluses that they produce under capitalism. Yes. That was a great answer and thank you so much. And it, it prompted with the very famous quote that you referenced about uh, only under certain circumstances does one become a slave or does something become capital. Mm -hmm. And the, the end of that quote that you, you reference in your article, uh, very famous as well, that capital is a social relation of production and it's a historical relation of production. How did Marx's understanding of, of slavery and also in this quote, uh, a certain understanding of, of race and, and racial structures influence his understanding of the social relations of, of capitalism and how it creates uh, certain structures? It's a good question, very good question, especially with reference to race, because this is one of the reasons why in Africana studies, people tend to reject Marxism by saying that it, it doesn't talk about racism, it only talks about class struggles. And in some cases, this is a, a genuine critique because in South Africa, during the struggle against apartheid, there were comrades who wrote academic papers arguing that the main struggle was against capitalism. It's a class struggle, right? So that race, the struggle against racism is a, a distraction from the class struggle. It, it is capable of dividing the working class and weakening the struggle. So we should join the South African Communist Party to focus the struggle on class struggles. This led to papers by Harold Volpe, for example, on capitalism and cheap labor in South Africa to say, 
whether what was going on in South Africa was only about capitalism or where there are other systems of exploitation and conflict struggles going on at the same time in South Africa. And he said, if you look at the South African mine workers who live in the hostels, in the townships, you find, although you can analyze their exploitation under capitalism as involving the class struggle, you find that the money that they earn is not kept by them, it's sent back to the villages where their families are still engaged in peasant agricultural production. And so to that extent, Volpe concluded that although the workers are earning cheap wages, they are still able to support large numbers of their families in, in the homelands, as the apartheid regime called it. And therefore, that homeland economy, peasant economy, the African mode of production was not completely replaced by capitalist mode of production. Rather, they are articulated or joined together. They are sometimes disarticulated and then rearticulated. But we should understand, in other words, that it is not only the class struggle that was going on in South Africa. There was also a very strong racial struggle against apartheid. And of course, there was a very strong gender struggles by South African women too. Um, that theory was then taken by Stewart Hall to reflect on what was going on in the UK itself under Thatcherism, under the rule of Margaret Thatcher. The assumption being in the UK that racism was something that affected only poor immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean adversely. And class struggle remained the major thing because the economy is almighty, as Althusser would put it. You uh, all say that's not the Marxist view of racism. Marx in Capital, I think in volume three, defined racism not simply as an ideology or idea or attitude, subjective, but also as part of the material conditions under which people make history sometimes. So you don't choose whether you are born white or black, but you come into a world that privileges white supremacy and whether you're black or white, you have to choose whether you're going to engage in this struggle for a world without racism, because it's not simply subjective. That is what came to be known as institutionalized racism, that racism is part of the material structure of society. It's not an idea only. That was Marx. And Stuart Hall brought this back to me when he put it in that essay for for UNESCO on race articulation and society structured in dominance by telling the British working class that they were voting massively for Margaret Thatcher because of Margaret Thatcher's idea that immigrants were swamping British culture. But they do not realize that when you have an authoritarian regime in power, they will not target only immigrants for exploitation or oppressive rule, rather their policies will affect all the poor people who should have joined together to 
resist authoritarianism and bring about a democratic society in the interest, especially of the poor masses of the people. So if you go to England under Margaret Thatcher, the policies were very, very austere. And for example, she took away free milk from school children. She didn't say, okay, we're gonna take away the free milk from black children. No, it's from all children. And therefore, as Marx would have said, we all should be in the struggle together against such racist ideas, such racist policies, such capitalist policies that exploit the poor, but also the sexism that join together with class and race to form the material base of society. It's not simply the superstructure, the way some people would have seen it in the architectural metaphor to say that only the economy is important. No, the racism, racism are still not only ideas, they are institutionalized. That is the, the view of Stokely Carmichael, Juan Meture. You know, it wasn't a, a thesis from a professor in economics or political science that identified this for us. It was the struggle for black power that reminded us that there is such a thing as institutionalized or structural racism that doesn't depend on the opinions or attitudes of individuals in a society. They were taking that directly from Marx in a way that we should not completely reject Marx. We should go back to read in detail to understand the amount of respect that Marx gave to Africa. In chapter 21, for example, he said that uh, we should place Africa on a pedestal. Like Isis, Isis, I think people call her Isis, that Africans call her Isis, the mother, mythical mother of humanity or mother of the sun god, the virgin mother of the sun god. There is a statue of her. I think it's here in the US in one of the presidential parts with a veil over her face and with an inscription to say nobody has ever removed those, the veil to reveal her face. And Marx was saying, right, that is what racism and slavery has done to the thinking of Europeans. They think that they are free from slavery. They think that only Africans, only Asians, only indigenous people need to worry about racism because it doesn't affect them. That's not true. That's not true because if you look at history, you find that every time the Europeans go to war against one another, some almost always racism is involved. It's not only a class struggle. Uh, you can see it in Ukraine and the Russians using pejorative racist words to describe each other, even before the shooting started. But also in the American Civil War, we are 700,000 Americans were killed over whether to continue enslaving Africans, which could have been put to a referendum and the poor whites would join with the 
all poor people to say, no, we don't benefit from slavery. We want it to end tonight. And it will end without having to fire a shot. Same thing in Germany. Nazism and anti-Semitism led them to war twice over the desire for more colonies in Africa, right? That was quite the fourth World War One, not because some, of some archduke who got assassinated. It was about colonies in Africa, according to Rosa Luxemburg and according to Du Bois. Now, what if all the European working class people understood this racism of imperialism and said to the bourgeoisies of their countries, you want to fight for colonies? Go fight by yourself. I ain't fighting. I don't, I don't own any colonies or I don't own any slaves. Why should I join you in fighting to keep slavery going? Now, to be fair to those fighters, they were conscripted. They didn't just volunteer to fight. But the point being made by Marx, by Du Bois, and many others is that allowing racism, allowing sexism, and of course, allowing imperialism will not only hurt the people who are being targeted, the vast majority of humanity will pay a huge price for those oppressive institutional practices. And that's where I agree with Marx a lot. In Africana studies, we practice the same kind of thinking by saying, no, we're not simply struggling against race, even though some people might be called race men or race women because their writings are mostly about racism. But they're still concerned about poverty. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Du Bois, every one of us, of course, will be against the exploitation of the poor. Same thing with sexism. Uh, black women's struggles in support of abolitionism, in support of the suffragette movement, in support of Black Lives Matter, is not simply about race. It's also against sexism and against capitalist exploitation. Moreover, in Africana studies, we have this thing called scholar activism or intellectual activism, which is what Marx practiced. And Marx told us again and again, I got this from the Africans. <laughs> I got this from the Africans fighting against slavery for abolitionism, that we as scholars shouldn't simply content ourselves with writing books. We should be on the streets organizing to make the world a better place too. That brings Marx closer to us. And I think if I rule the world, I will make that capital I require reading in Africana studies. Mm -hmm. Well, that would be that would be perfect, uh, and I'm sure there would be a lot of innovation if if that was required. I'm curious on that note of the scholarship. So you mentioned Harold Volpe, but the scholarship on racial capitalism that has emerged and how that is interpreting Marx's work on capital. Yes, yes, that's that's a very important question to ask, because if capitalism developed first in the UK with reference to peasants in the UK and the uh, British working class, can we still say that it was racist at the same time? Or did the racism emerge only when they started engaging with the enslavement of Africans? 
and the killing of indigenous people to steal their land. The answer to that question is that race as a category was not originally applied to black people, you know, in Europe. Initially, the notion of race was confused with nation. So the Germanic races, the French race, the English race, the Irish race, that's how they talked about themselves. If you read the 17th century literature, they looked at racism as synonymous with nationalism. Every nation was supposedly a different race. Even the Spanish and the Portuguese thought they were different races, <laughs> right? Okay, so in addition to that, with further development in what you might call scientific racism, where people started measuring the scores of uh, people and trying to find whether there are such things as a genetic disposition to a certain characteristics of human behavior. Then they started applying the term race, again, not to Africans, but to poor Europeans. They said, if they were the same race as the ruling class, how come they're poor? <laughs> so they assumed that poor people must belong to an inferior race in Europe. And it's a danger for the empire because this inferior race will not be able to defend our empire around the world. So what we should do is to transport them away from Britain so that they can go live in America or Australia or New Zealand or Canada, where they will not have the opportunity to reproduce with the superior master race and thereby contribute to the weakening of the quality or purity of the master race. So that's the original formulation of racial categories in Europe. They, we are not exclusively applied to Africa, but now today we know that all human beings are 99.9% .9 identical in terms of genetic makeup, right? This wasn't always known in the 1950s, for example, there was a lawyer in the US, I've forgotten his name, but if you read Sheikh Antadioc, Civilization of Barbarism and Authentic Anthropology. Why is the subtitle Authentic Anthropology? Because there were people who were going around promoting a mythological anthropology to say why people must have come from a different kind of monkey, from Africans, that you know there is uh, multi-genesis of human beings from different types of origin. Sheikh Antadioc said it's only monogenesis, not polygenesis. We all came from the same monkey, thank you very much. <laughs> he was writing this in the 1950s and eventually he has been proven correct that all human beings originated in Africa without exception. And we share the same genetic makeup more than any other animal species do. So in that sense, racism or racial capitalism 
is a misnomer because racism, capitalism, and sexism were never separate right from the beginning. There is nowhere you can go and find a pure capitalism that is not already racialized, that is not already sexualized or gender specific in its operation or exploitation of the workers or relation to other nations around the world in, in dependency and domination. So instead of talking about racial capitalism, maybe a better term would be racist capitalism. You know, because it's possible to have a democracy where the capitalism is not as racist as it is in some other countries. Say, under apartheid South Africa, it was capitalism, but a different kind of capitalism compared to the capitalism in Sweden, for example, which is more of a social democratic type of capitalism. US and Canada are both capitalistic. But you can go to Canada and all your health bills are settled by the government. It's still capitalism. Canada is not a socialist country. Same thing in the UK or France. In France, you can actually have an au pair paid by the government to come and do your dishes and wash, do your laundry if you have a, a, a young baby to care for in France. The government pays for that. Right, but it's still capitalism, though. <laughs> it's not socialism just because the racism has been challenged and the working people have won some significant victories against a pure and simple racist capitalism. So that point, that term, racial capitalism, is useful as a reminder that when you're fighting against capitalism, you shouldn't be blind to racism. Right. Uh, but, but it is something that we should take forward by reminding all of us that we should not be simply against class exploitation, but also racist, sexist, imperialist exploitation of the world. That's actually the word that they use in capitalism when they talk about natural resources. They said that the approach is to exploit natural resources in the interest of capitalist development. But exploitation is a bad word in Marxism and therefore we should find a different way of relating to natural forces that will not be exploitative there will be co-dependency, co-survival in a world where climate warming caused mainly by capitalist exploitation of resources would affect the lives of all of us, not just the poor or Africans in Africa, but also the poor in Europe and all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you emphasize definitely the universality of Marx's ideas and capitalism and, and emphasizing this proletarian universalism. I'm curious how you 
engage with other thinkers who label it Eurocentric and also on the on the other hand, a growing discussion about labor aristocracy and about you know world systems theory that does talk about workers in the first world necessarily having different interests with respect. So more imperialism study uh, that talks about workers in the first world and those in the third having different interests. Um, how do you assert a kind of proletarian universalism coming out of Marx by rejecting this allegation of Eurocentrism and also saying that there is international solidarity to be had from what Marx says? Oh, that's a tough question. And the debate is going on within Africana studies, also within feminism, and within Marxism itself. Uh, whether this is an idea that is universal, in other words, it's applicable all over the world, not in, in the terms of a dogma, so that you can quote Marx and Marx said everything that needs to be said. That, that is queer. Cedric Robinson is important because he reminded us that there are black Marxists who simply quoted what Marx and Engels or Lenin said, but didn't make an original contribution of their own. So he is saying, if that is all we do in black studies, then there will be no need to have a discipline like Africana studies because we can all go and read Marx and get all the answers. European, Euro communism tended to have that approach to any discussion would say Marx covered it all. Marx foresaw everything. You don't need to read anything else. Just read Marx and you get all the answers. That wasn't the intention of Marx. Marx always invited us to challenge what he was writing and draw our own conclusions through the concrete analysis of concrete situations. So what is universal in Marxism is the methodology. Marx told us that in order to understand any society, any epoch in history, we should look at the struggles engaged by people and how those struggles were resolved. So the working class struggle, but also the struggle against racism and sexism are very important struggles in our lifetime that we should be studying all the time for lessons on how to resolve current and existing struggles wherever we may be. You don't have to be a Marxist to agree that that is a good method for studying society. You got to use what has happened in history as a guide to understand what is happening now. That was different from the idea of Hegel. Although Hegel was right to say that there is the dialectics between thesis and antithesis that will be resolved into the synthesis, he thought all the thesis and antithesis were simply ideas in people's heads. My Marx said, no, no, it's not just an idea in people's heads. It is a material struggle going on in front of our eyes that we need to understand and organize better so that the progressive forces will win. So the, the criticism by Molefi Asante against 
Marxism in his work, the Afrocentric idea, and then the Afrocentric manifesto more recently, is uh, genuine criticism for people in Africana studies to consider. Yes, Marx is an ally, but we can also make original contributions to Marxism from our own struggles, from our own knowledge of contemporary issues. Rayla Rabaka makes a similar critique of Marx by lumping Marx together with Marx Weber and Emil Durkheim to say that they were European or Eurocentric thinkers who never paid attention to the struggles of people of African descent. That might be true of Weber and Durkheim, but it's not true about Marx. Marx paid a lot of attention to Africa that we should uh, go back and read and appreciate. You find it also in the work on, uh, well, maybe not to itemize, but to say that in reality, most of our major intellectuals in the Africana tradition, in Black studies, we are not against Marx. They were actually Marxists. Du Bois was a Marxist, using Marxist terms, right? Uh, CLR James, Black Jacobin, that's a Marxist text. Oliver Cox, Race, Class, and Caste. Angela Davis, Marable, Connor West, Stewart Hall in the UK. These are major, uh, Ameka Cabra in Guinea, France Fanon, Walter Rodney. These are giants in Marxist thought, in Marxist theory. How can we afford to reject them all? because they have identified with a very powerful methodology and theory for organizing the resistance against racism, sexism, imperialism as joint practices. We can't afford to reject them all. But the reason why there is a rejectionist approach to Marxism is, goes beyond anything Marx wrote. It is ideological in the sense that when Black studies was emerging in the 1960s, if you identified as a Marxist, you wouldn't get a job in the US, right? Because of the anti-American, un-American activities of Joseph Marcati panel in, in the Senate. So I understand that it is strategic or was strategic to conceal your ideological proximity to Marxist thought in order to establish the discipline. But now, 40 or 50 years later, when we look back, we haven't actually rejected Marx Weber even though Marx Weber was considered to be an imperialist in his thinking, why do we embrace 
the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism when the man didn't say a word about 400 years of the enslavement of Africans that built capitalism. He thought it was Protestantism that built capitalism. So today you still find people because Weber is acceptable to imperialism who would identify to be Weberians and shun Marxism because even today, you can still get fired from your job for being a little bit too Marxist. Marx never got a job offer. Du Bois was always being asked to leave. Uh, C.L.R. James never held a job in his life. I think maybe the exception is uh, Oliver Cox, but he was only in a historically black institution, not a major institution that he deserved. Angela Davis was fired even before she started. And Franz Fanon had to resign from working for the French to join the Algerian resistance. Walter Rodney was fired from his job in Jamaica and then assassinated in his own home country, Guyana. So there is a good reason why people are afraid to identify the work they do as Moses. But when you go into detail, you find there is nothing to be afraid of here. You know, Marx was in support of the war against slavery in America. He was writing to Abraham Lincoln, you know, congratulating him for the victory against the Confederacy. Nothing really to be ashamed of or afraid of. Because people will still lose jobs because of the economy and other reasons, discrimination is still ever present, but that's no reason for us to shy away from the conclusions that we can draw from our observations, our community organizing, and our theoretical work. Yeah, so I once proposed a special topic course in Africana studies to read more to read capital in Africana studies, but nobody, nobody volunteer because that's that's probably gonna be a, a bad a bad item on their transcripts when they're looking for jobs or something. I don't know why they shy their way, but that's okay. That's okay. So I went ahead and wrote it up as an article that people seem to be appreciating. And thank you for picking up that interest. So yes, there is a good reason why people were afraid to be identified as Marxists. You can be fired. You can even get yourself killed by identifying as a Marxist. Uh, that's one thing. Another thing is if you want to be original, maybe you shouldn't identify as a Marxist. You should identify as a Black Studies, African Studies expert, because then you can make more original contributions. Uh, those two reasons are genuine and I understand. I appreciate them, but we should still be able to make more original contributions by not shying away from our convictions and evidence that we find. We, we have examples in our history of people who boldly identify with the work of Marx and with the work of Du Bois, with the work of James, Fanon, Rodney, and 
Akabra, etc., etc., Angela David have been rewarded. That's what we should be doing in our own work. Even if we don't get promotions, even if we don't get tenure, even if we don't get hired by research one universities, we should still continue to pursue knowledge and organize in our communities in such a way to oppose all forms of oppression and exploitation the way Marx learned from the struggles of African people of African descent. And he said so. He said, this story is about you <laughs> and you don't even know it yet. <laughs> he said this, he was writing about us. Yes. Well, I will just say if, if you had offered that course and I was a student, uh, <laughs> okay. I, okay. I would definitely have taken it. Because okay, so, I think I think it's so important to to yeah, read Marx and to read Capital. Yeah, maybe we should do that course again, but not in the context of credit for a degree. Maybe we should do an open course, some course where somewhere and people from around the world will join us and read Capital page by page, line by line, to understand better the internationalism of Marx that he was not Eurocentric, even though he was born in Europe. He was uh, an internationalist. Yeah, and that, that relates to, I think, the last thing that I wanted to talk to you about, which is the very famous quote uh, in Capital, where Marx talks about how Europe has turned Africa into a hunting ground. And it relates in, in his discussion about primitive accumulation and colonialism. I'm yeah. wondering if you can give more of an understanding of how Marx perceived colonialism, how he used anti-colonial struggle, but also the growing imperialism in Europe to understand the developments of capitalism and how that is the inspiration for so many theories of imperialism. Yes, that's a good question. And that quote was referenced to formerly enslaved people in Jamaica saying that they're not going to go back to the plantation to work for the slave masters. Now that freedom has come, they wouldn't mind watching the plantation burn down or the crops go to waste because nobody's willing to go and be enslaved on the plantation again. The Europeans thought that was because Africans were lazy and needed a master to force them to work. Marx was saying that's not laziness, that's smart. You know, if you put yourself in the shoes of those Africans, you wouldn't work for people who enslaved your ancestors for hundreds of years. Right. Um, in, in explaining it that way, Marx is not saying that. Africans should have no job, should be unemployed after slavery was abolished or workers shouldn't go to work. Marx wasn't saying that unemployment or idleness would be the best thing for workers. No, Marx recognized that the production of goods and services to meet our needs is part of our human nature. We don't simply go and pluck 
fruits from the forest to survive the way other animals would do. As human beings, we also plan the planting, you know, build the factory, build the schools to teach skills. That's a social thing that we have always been doing. On the other hand, there is a fable in political economy that people like Adam Smith would reproduce in the wealth of nations. So there are two types of nation or two types of people. Nations or people who work hard, save and invest to accumulate more wealth and nations or people who are wasteful of their resources, do not save and do not invest and therefore are poor. Mark said that's simply the theory, I mean, the fable of the Garden of Eden to say, to say some people are sinful people, some people are good people, and the good people are blessed by God. He said, no, 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 that's not how capitalism came. It didn't come from the personal savings of people who were hardworking. Rather, capitalism was built on primitive accumulation. Primitive in the sense that it is the initial accumulation, not in the sense of being uncivilized. So according to Marx, when you look at the origin of capitalism, you find that the initial source of capital came from the hunting of Africans as a harem for black skin to be enslaved. It came in the form of genocide against indigenous people to seize their land. It, it came by force, by war, by fraud, rather than through savings and investment. And once we, and I agree with Mars, I don't think anybody in Africana studies would disagree with that assessment. The only person who would disagree would be Max Weber because he thought it was the Protestant ethic of hard work and savings that made capitalism to develop first in England and then in the US rather than in China or India or Africa because in those other religious systems, Hindu religion, or African traditional spiritualism, there is no Protestantism. And so having Protestantism might be the explanation, said Weber, but then the enslaved Africans and their descendants in America today are some of the most Protestant people in America. The Black Baptist tradition. So how come they are poor, even though they are adherence to the same Protestantism that Marx Weber saw as the spirit of capitalism for accumulation of more wealth. The reason, of course, is because people of African descent went through hundreds of years of being enslaved without pay. And that continued under Jim Crow for another 100 years. And now it is continuing in the form of mass incarceration of a large number of people of African descent in their most productive years, right? 
So that is what Moas was telling us with primitive accumulation. Some in Afghanistan studies will reject it because of that word primitive, who you call him primitive, Mr. Marx. But that wasn't the sense in which he used it. He said it's primitive in the sense that it was the original. And he may have made a mistake by thinking that that stage of primitive accumulation was a stage that may have passed, whereas primitive accumulation continues. You can find it now with rich people making a lot more money, a lot more money, not always by saving an investment, but, but through speculation, through sometimes fraud, through theft and stuff like that, even today. So primitive accumulation is an ongoing process rather than a stage. The most was why capitalism is not built simply based on savings and investment. It's based on violence, a huge amount of violence all around the world. If we understand that, then we can actually organize the way Martin Luther King Jr. reminded us that there are three evils in America, but maybe more than three, poverty, racism, and war, he said. Maybe he neglected to add gender, but that, that's understandable in the time he was writing, or, or Du Bois. But they got the picture clearer than Max Weber, than Adam Smith, that the exploitation of Africans contributed to the development of capitalism in America, the genocide against indigenous people and the seizure of their land, more than Protestantism did. And that was the thesis by Eric Williams in Oxford University, Capitalism and Slavery, for which they refused to give him a job. <laughs> Right, so he was discriminated against because of that thesis, dissertation. So he had to get a job only in a historically black college, Howard University. And the book was first published in America by the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Just to say that America is actually a revolutionary country. Even though it's bourgeois revolution, a capitalist revolution, but they were against imperialism. That was quite the war for independence is still known as the revolutionary war, right? So that may be the reason why Eric Williams got a job here in America and his book was published in America, even though America being capitalist, although the book was published in the 1940s before McCarthyism in the 1950s. So maybe if he had waited 10 years, it, the book would not have been published. But after 80 years, only now is the book being published in, in England for the first time to show that that resistance against any critique of imperialism is still very strong in the UK, where the Queen still gives out the New Year honors of the Knights of the British Empire or, or the Order of the British Empire, even though the struggles against empire around the world initiated by the Americans. That is part of the reason why Marx loved American, American struggles 
to build a democracy against slavery is a very important one for us. So Marx and Engels will say in the Communist Manifesto that the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. But in the essay that he presented at Syracuse University in, I'm not sure, 19, 1967 or so, I'm not sure exact date. The essay is called The Weapon of Fury. The weapon of fury. You can get it online. And in that essay, he said it was presented in Havana, in Cuba. He said that Marx and Engels may have made a mistake by saying that class struggle is the only engine that produces social change in history. So the emergence of capitalism can only be explained in terms of class struggle. It might be true to a large extent with capitalism, but is it true also about the social change from communalism to feudalism or to slavery, from communalism to slavery, for example? If there were no classes under communalism, what then was the motive force that changed society from common ownership of property to the ownership of individuals as property under slavery. Cabral said it cannot be class struggle, right? Because there was no, there were no classes under communalism, even according to the work of Marx and later the work of Engels in the origin of the family, private property and the state. <laughs> no class yet <laughs> in the origin of the family. It's just gender relations, etc. the community. So Cabra changed that formulation to say that what is the engine of history is the level of the development of the productive forces. The level of the development of labor, for example, the level of the development of the tools that are used for production, the level of the development of the relationship between men and women, the level of the development of the relationship between people who spoke different languages, ethnic, city, etc. Not necessarily always class struggle. And moreover, what would happen in a future communism after classes have been abolished? Will there still be history made? Or will history come to an end under communism? Cabral said no, because Cabral was an agronomist. He said, he was saying that you might have communism, but history will be made if we develop food technology to such an extent that we abolish hunger. That would be a new epoch where nobody goes to bed hungry because they are poor, simply because we have improved the seeds, the tools for agriculture around the world. It is possible. It is possible for somebody to find a cure for HIV. It is possible for somebody to discover a cure for COVID. 
without engaging in a class struggle. But that those discoveries, scientific discoveries, are capable of changing the world. Now we're talking to each other with a Zoom. That, that's a, a, an in, industrial or technological revolution, a change in history that didn't exist maybe 10 years ago, only 10 years ago, we didn't have Zoom. Yeah? I think we had something else that wasn't as good. Uh, I forgot what name they call it. Yeah, but that's a very big challenge to Marxism coming from America Cabral in Africa. That the difficulty of making the struggle only a class struggle in a place like Africa is that you have working class people fighting against working class people. Because whenever there is war, civil war or revolution, the soldiers and the police officers who defend the status quo are also working class. That was the view of uh, Antonio Gramsci when workers wrote to him in prison to say, well, you told us that this thing is all about class struggle. How come the workers are the ones holding the key to your prison cell? Why don't they let you out as a leader of the workers? And uh, Gramsci said it was because of hegemony that the bourgeoisie is capable of exercising intellectual and moral leadership over the workers. It is not only the workers who are capable of exercising hegemony. Lenin had said the workers had to exercise hegemony in order to win because the workers were fewer in number compared to the peasants and other exploited classes. It's for the workers to unite them and lead them in a hegemony to win. Gramsci said, yeah, the bourgeoisie are doing the same thing. <laughs> Whenever they declare war against another nation, it is always the working class that go and fight those wars. So in the struggle for independence from Portugal, Gramsci, I mean, Cabral said to the workers, even the people fighting against us are workers too, re recruited by the colonizers. So in our class war, we shouldn't emphasize only class war. We should also emphasize the organization and re-education of the poor workers so that we will come to build unity step by step because unity is not uniformity, according to Cabral. Unity is not unanimity. And every little unity goes a long way, according to Cabral. Uh, and that can be illustrated with one example from his book, I think a, a posthumous book that was published recently, where one of the liberation fighters went to Cabral, maybe to get a promotion or become more trusted and told Cabral that a spirit told him to sacrifice his first son so that the revolutionaries would win in a battle against the colonizers. And Cabral said to him, well, show me where that spirit is so that we can kill the spirit first because it must be the spirit of the colonizers. <laughs> it's trying to divide and weaken the liberation struggle. We don't kill children. So, you know, this is scientific. We organize better, we maneuver better, we win, but sacrificing our children the way the Greeks did when they were going to uh, uh, the, one of their wars 
I don't know, I think it was against Thor, the, the leader of the Greek soldier sacrificed his daughter for success in battle. Um, and uh, of course, in the Christian Bible, the God sacrificed his son the same way Abraham was about to sacrifice his only son. And Cabra was saying, no, we don't do that. We actually love children in Africa and we want more children not to sacrifice them for any spiritual reasons. Yeah, so that problem is still there facing us in the world today because capitalism seems to be triumphant and dominant, but the crisis remains because of that commodity fetishism of using the value of a commodity to determine the value of human beings, the, the value of nature and the environment. We cannot put a price on it. That's what Marx was saying. And we should learn to focus on the needs of our societies and come together to provide those needs of putting a price tag on healthcare on public libraries, on public education, or even public broadcast, radio and public television, where you don't have to pay anything to, to watch or listen. That's more important than saying only people who pay maybe $200 every day, every year, can be allowed to listen to NPR. That would not be a very good service, even for NPR, because they want more people to listen, even if they are not contributing. <laughs> well, thank you so much for very, very comprehensive answers. Uh, I will say just, just in concluding that I learned a lot from, from reading your article and, and from talking to you as well. Something I didn't know was uh, the, the letter that you mentioned that Marx wrote where he says that an understanding of slavery is actually integral to him to understanding capitalism. I don't know, I, I only have about five more minutes left, but I don't know, is there more information I should know about that letter or anything in Marx's writing that is really focused on this understanding of, of slavery and colonialism? Yes, that's a very good question. And quickly to answer it, I will say read Stewart Hall because Stewart Hall, emphasizes this in that essay, race and articulation in society structured and dominance and almost everything else he has written. But also take a look at uh, the thought just escaped me now, but yes, you are right that according to Marx, racism is not separate from capitalist exploitation. Capitalist exploitation is racist from beginning of its formation and its relationship to people of African descent and indigenous people. This was not always known in Marxism. For example, Leon Trotsky thought that the way to solve the problem of racism was to first solve the class, the class problem of capitalism once there is a socialist revolution, 
racism would also be addressed. It was CLR James who went to Mexico to debate with Trotsky to say, no, 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 you're getting it wrong. According to Marx, racism is at the core of capitalism. You can't separate them and say, let's finish fighting capitalism before we fight racism. Rather, because they are joined together, they are experienced together, we should fight them together, we should organize against them together because that's what Marx did in his own work. And for that reason, the theory of articulation, which is lifted almost verbatim from volume three of Capital, to talk about articulation of different modes of production, the way Harold Volpe did, is an important lesson for us. And according to Stewart Hall, that means that the struggle for progress cannot be divided into identity formations. So the working class struggle is going on over there, the gender struggle is going on over there, and the racial struggles are going over there, separate from each other. He said we should find a way to articulate them or join them together by building coalitions, by building alliances. Those Europeans who support the fight against racism tend to view it as a work of charity, that they are doing it to support the people of African descent or indigenous people. Marx will say, no, 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 it's not separate. You are doing it for your own good too, because the oppression of people based on racism would affect poor working class people all over the world too. And for that reason, sexism too. So the feminists who say that Marxism neglected women are wrong. Because of course, Engels wrote that book on the origin of the family, but even in the work of Marx, again and again references to the exploitation of women and children in the factories can be found in such a way that we should articulate or join together. That articulation is found in the work of the Black Panther Party. They, they were not simply against racism, they were also against capitalist exploitation, and they were also against sexism to the extent that about 70% of the leadership of the Black Panther Party were women, more than any other political party in the US. So for that reason, there is still a, a lot of lesson for us to learn, but we shouldn't do it in, in such a way that we only quote phrases from Marx without going deeper into our history to understand how he borrowed from our history and why we shouldn't be ashamed or afraid to take back some of those learns that we gave to Marx. It wasn't only us that Marx borrowed from. He borrowed from even European thinkers of his time, the political economists, but his borrowing from us is strange. In the, to the extent that we have not acknowledged it. We have not. I mean, until I wrote that article, um, a lot of people didn't know that this was what Marx was thinking and saying again and again and again and again throughout that capital, but even in other pieces of work that he wrote. So I welcome your interest in that essay. 
I have promised myself that I should complete the work of writing it as a book so that I can then go into greater details on what I, I'm hypothesizing here that Africa and knowledge about the struggles by Africans were central concerns for Marx, not passing references in his work. Well, when your book is, is finished and does come out, please let me know because I will absolutely be first in line to read it. Um, oh, thank, thank you, you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. And I, I really enjoyed it. And I'll, I'll definitely stay in touch because I'd love to follow up uh, with more questions and, and to read the book as well. So I'll stay in touch. Anytime, anytime. Thank you for your right. interest. Of course. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.